joining us as we start a new year of our adult class back up. And I'm excited for our class today. Let me, um, let me open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness, your grace, your shepherding love of us as we have just uh, meditated on and will again uh, at the 11 o'clock. And uh, I pray now as we take the, these next moments uh, to consider a topic that means very much to you, Lord. This is sexuality is something you created, um, that you have given to humanity, that you've given to your people. Um, and sadly, because of the fall, um, something this precious, you know, the evil one, loves to take things that are most precious to us and, and, and uh, twist them. And um, we all here have experienced brokenness in this area. So Lord, we need your help. Uh, we need you to be our shepherd and guide us uh, through this uh, series of lessons um, on sexuality. Uh, would you teach us more of your design and your desire um, of what this can look like in our lives? Would you teach us um, how we can be ambassadors for your vision for sexuality in this world? Um, would you give us uh, compassion uh, for those who have experienced brokenness in this area? And uh, would you also um, fill us with grace um, and dignity um, for, for anyone here um, who has experienced brokenness in this area? Um, we thank you that um, you are a good and kind shepherd and father, and uh, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the class before us is biblical sexuality. Um, let's see if this works. Not happening, Hale. Is, is that, did you test it, Hale? I did not. There we go. Yes, yes. <laughs> Uh, so why does, this is a question for you all, I'd love to hear just a couple answers. Why does the church, why do Christians need to excel at articulating and living out the biblical vision of sexuality? What are, what are some initial thoughts you guys have about that? Why is it important to, to talk about these things? Because the world has it wrong and we need to model it. Because the world has it wrong and we need to model it. Yeah, what else? Another one? If we don't, they will. Absolutely. Now that's a that's a very important point. It's we're being discipled in this every day. Um, absolutely. Any other thoughts? Yeah, yeah. We'll definitely be picking that up even today. Some. Yeah, that's a great point. It, it's it's something that is in the Bible. It's a gift of God, and, and talking about it well brings him lots of glory. And so it's, it's, yeah, even for that reason. No, those are good. Any other thoughts? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think too, it the more we as Christians can can live out God's design for sexuality, I think 
the more of uh, an apologetic, I guess you could say, we could be to the world to, um, to show them the beauty of God's design and, and how much better of a story God has given us uh, for our sexuality. Uh, so I think it even helps our witness to um, be able to more beautifully live this out <clears throat> uh, in our spheres of influence. I think, too, it's, it's, it's helpful to study it to hopefully redeem this topic from some of the guilt and shame that can revolve around it in many of our lives. <clears throat> um, so, yes, all good reasons. Um, I don't know who uh, this quote is from, but I thought it was helpful. There is no view of sex in all other religions or worldview that is as robust as that of the biblical view of sex. So just kind of a an encouragement for us as we dive into this, that, that we are digging into a very helpful space um, to learn about this topic. I just want to give a brief overview of where we are going. Oh, sorry, yes. 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 Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So even having a, a, a helpful, healthy view of it is, is important for the, the going forward of the family in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a great point. So uh, where we're headed, so song, song that's kind of an umbrella. Song of Songs is going to kind of be the umbrella, the sort of the home base for us the next couple weeks. I'm going to be kind of working through each chapter of Song of Songs in the Bible I want you to know this is not going to be an in-depth Bible study of Song of Songs. We're not going to, you know, pick it all apart, but we're definitely going to, um, you know, go through each section and, and draw some, some meaning and interpretation out, but we're probably going to spend a little more time on the application side of things from Song of Songs. Um, there's just a lot of different topics that actually naturally come up just from this book. Um, so body image, that'll be next week in the first chapter of Song of Songs. You see the bride wrestling with some body image issues. Um, obviously, cultural analysis of, of kind of how sex is um, taught in our world. I, I am going to share in today, so the three lies and three truths about sex, I want to talk about that through this. Um, today, I'm going to introduce the three lies about sex in our, in our world, and then kind of share later, a couple weeks from now, three truths um, to answer those lies. And then um, we're going to take some time uh, to go through our denomination's position paper on sexuality that was just approved uh, this past summer. It's a really helpful document. It has, you know, at the heart of it, it has these 12 statements, I guess, if you will, that um, it does a great job of not only articulating um, a real robust biblical stance on, on all the relevant topics of our day, but also it, it gives guidance and wisdom on how to um, take those truths and, and present them and hold them in a graceful way towards others. And so I think it really strikes a neat balance. I'm excited to be able to um, talk about that. And in in, in that position paper, it talks about things like same-sex attraction and transgender, and we're going to talk about um, a biblical understanding of those different topics. Um, we'll talk a little bit about marriage issues 
marriage conflict over sex, that can be a, a source of a lot of conflict in marriages. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. That actually comes up a little bit in Song of Songs as well. And then the last chapter of Song of Songs is kind of this uh, call to um, teach the next generation well about sex. And so the last class, it will be sort of, okay, how do we um, take this, this wonderful biblical view of sexuality and how do we disciple the next generation with this? So we're going to talk about some of those things. So I'm excited for this. I'm also a little anxious. Um, this is a weighty topic. And uh, this topic can bring up wounds in, in some of your lives. Um, it can bring up shame. Um, and I know some of your stories around that. Um, so there's lots of brokenness even in this room. And uh, so I just want you to know that I'm aware of that. And I hope to proceed delicately. Um, but I also am excited to be able to have this conversation together. A couple of the books that will be um, part of my Teaching this class is um, this commentary by Ian Duguid. I think that's how you say his name. He's a professor and a pastor in England. And um, he came out with this commentary just a couple years ago. It's one of the better commentaries and more accessible. Um, and then this book by Phil Riken, who's the president of Wheaton College. He's in our denomination. And this, he gave a series of chapel talks to Wheaton students on Song of Songs. Um, and then he made it into a book. And uh, his book is heavily dependent on this commentary, so we'll be interacting with these. Uh, one of my favorite books on sex is called Divine Sex by Jonathan Grant. Um, it, it's an incredible resource. I highly commend it. It is a little, not quite as accessible as some. He gets a little philosophical, but he does a great job of, um, you know, talking about some of the, the ways, some of the myths of sexuality, and then does a great job of showing a beautiful picture of the biblical vision of sexuality. And then I'm a little late to the game in this one. This has been a book that has really um, taken off, and for good reason. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. It came out, I don't know, a year or a year and a half ago. Um, and for good reason. Um, it's a lot of people have read it, and he, he's just trying to show over the last several centuries how we have arrived at the place we have in our society where um, there's just this, you know, this view of, of self-expression and, and, and everything. I, I, I have not read the book in its entirety. I've started it, um, but I know that um, a lot of truths in it will come out at various times throughout this series, so I commend all of those to you if you want to dive deeper. Uh, today I want to start, the, the lesson today I want to title Divine Romance. Um, I want to look sort of at the, the wider context of um, shoot, it's not working now. Hmm. Thank you. The wider context of Song of Solomon, Song of Songs. Um, it's kind of like the biblical setting that it it falls in. And uh, to do that, though, I need to first talk about the two major interpretive approaches to Song of Songs that have been in the church throughout the years. And those are the spiritual approach and the natural approach. Uh, most have either kind of taken one of those or the other. And um, so the spiritual approach um, is to take the, all of this dialogue between the bride and the groom in Song of Songs and just allegorize it all. So it's not, we don't apply this 
as much to our marriages um, or to our relationships. Um, it's this approach to Song of Songs that this is an allegory of our relationship with Christ. And that's how we should take it. And that's actually um, has been the more popular approach to Song of Songs throughout the history of the church. Um, an example of this is a, first, a fifth century church father um, he took the, the, fray, the verse in one, chapter 113, My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. This is how he allegorized that. What's really being talked about there is Jesus standing between the Old and New Testaments. Um, and, you know, that's what it's talking about. So that's, a, that's an example of allegory. Um, there's another example from a Puritan where it says, the, the woman's talking about the man, his head is the finest gold, his locks are wavy and black as a raven. And uh, they, they allegorized that and said those curled black locks, they represent the divine counsel. As God is said to dwell in thick darkness, so do his thoughts represented by those wavy locks. Although God's thoughts are not, you know, wavy and tangled like that, um, they say. So, that's an example, um, Bernard of Clairvaux, um, preaching to monks who, of course, were celibate. He, he allegorized it, and he, he gave 86 sermons just on the first three chapters of Song of Songs. Um, so that, I just thought that was interesting. So we will not be doing that here, uh, not to fear. But there's obviously some upsides to that approach. Our relationship, as I'll get into in a second, our relationship with Christ is, is frequently likened to marriage in the Bible. Uh, but some downsides is it, it can downplay the beauty of marital intimacy that the Bible celebrates. Um, and also the kind of the freedom to kind of take this allegory approach has allowed for people to make a wide-ranging, um, you know, interpretations. You can kind of go wild with some of the interpretations and the freedom you have. And also it's interesting to think about how the New Testament doesn't really give us a model for um, interpreting the Song of Songs that way. So that's the spiritual approach. Um, there's also the natural approach, which is the opposite. It's, it's to take it literally. It's about the, the physical love, the, the, the intimacy, the, the relationship between a man and a woman. Um, it's, it's a celebration of human love and sexuality. It shows the delight. This, this book is to show the delight that comes from following God's design for intimacy in a covenant relationship. God wants us in our marriages to have an amazing sex life, and this, in the Bible, shows us how through, through books like Song of Songs. It's kind of the pinnacle of that. But we're going to take the approach in this class that that is a false dichotomy. Either having a spiritual approach or a natural approach is a false dichotomy. We're going to take a blended approach, which is what uh, Riken takes, and, and Ian kind of describes in his commentary. Um, where kind of taking it at face value primarily a relationship between a man and a woman, and we can apply that to our own marriages, but also, as I'll show in a moment, um, we can also, anytime we talk about marriages, it's, to, it's created by God as a picture of the gospel as well. And so we can also have a spiritual reading of it as well. So that kind of helps set up... Um, what I want to talk about now in this wider context of Song of Songs and, and, and how it fits into the wider narrative. And that's, that's more taking the, I'm going to be taking more of the spiritual approach for the rest of this class, and we'll get into more of the natural approach um, the rest of the time.
So I don't want to allegorize everything in Song of Songs. I want to be faithful to God's purpose for marriage and romance, um, which the Bible, but the Bible consistently calls them mysteries that point beyond themselves to God's everlasting love. When we talk about the way spouses love each other, which um, Song of Songs portrays at great length, we are never simply talking about marriage, uh, but always about Christ's great love for the church. So think about Genesis 1 and 2. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman, brought her to the man. And the man said, this is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she's taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and um, unashamed. So don't miss the significance of what's going on here in the flow of Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, we've just had this, this really grand a huge talk of creation, God creating the whole cosmos, uh, putting the stars in place and making um, everything on the earth. And then it shifts to the man and the woman. Um, and so the, the backdrop of marriage, um, as it's first described in the Bible, is, is got the grandness of creation. And there's something being communicated there as marriage gets this... Uh, important enough to be talked about in these first chapters of the Bible. Um, There's something being communicated there. And Ray Ortland, he says, the attention of the text shifts from the heavens and earth coming together in cosmic order to a man and woman coming together in earthly marriage. There it is, this particular thing we call marriage, tenderly portrayed in its humble reality and delicate innocence against the enormous backdrop of creation. This is, of course, not to diminish the significance of singleness, uh, which the Bible holds up as equally valuable. And I don't know if I had it on, um, I think I forgot to put it on my uh, PowerPoint, but we are definitely going to be talking about singleness as well um, in, uh, in this series. But as the rest of the story of the Bible unfolds, we see that the prominence um, of marriage in Genesis 1 and 2 is not just to communicate the worthiness and blessedness of God's gift of marriage, but it's also a foundational picture of how God is going to be relating to his people the rest of the story. Uh, Marriage will become one of the primary ways that God describes his relationship with his people, the rest of the Bible. Uh, Isaiah, in I think Isaiah 54, puts it most bluntly, your maker is your husband. And later in Isaiah, as the bride, or earlier in Isaiah, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Jeremiah 31, God is Israel. God says he is Israel's husband from the time of the Exodus. He, he describes himself in this kind of relationship with his people as a husband to them. So how is our relationship with God like a marriage? Both are based on love. Um, our relationship with God and our, and our marriage relationship. There is to be an intimate love between uh, the husband and wife and as well as in our relationship with the Lord. Both are bound by promises. We are betrothed to the God who says, I will love you always and forever. It's a covenant relationship. But both are exclusive relationships. You shall have no other gods before me, he says. He is a jealous God. This is an exclusive relationship that we have. We are to have uh, no idols before him. Um, so there's language in the Old Testament uh, also on the, on the flip side of the reality that God's people did not live this out well. And often in the uh, prophets, it describes the actions of God's people as like being a whore, uh, being a prostitute, 
prostituting with other gods. Their idolatry is compared to adultery. Um, Jeremiah 3, it likens the idolatry that they go into as sleeping with other gods. And of course, Hosea is the, the pinnacle of that whole discussion. Um, Hosea is instructed by God to marry Gomer, a prostitute. Uh, but then eventually, a couple chapters in, she goes back into prostitution. But uh, there's a story, I think, in chapter 3 where Hosea buys her back. Um, and um, he, uh, he had an auction. And, and it's, you know, one person said, imagine paying the highest price for someone else's spiritual adultery. And it's such a picture of God's love towards us in Hosea. And when we get to the New Testament, suddenly the groom walks into the room. John the Baptist calls Jesus the groom. Um, Jesus compares his kingdom to maidens awaiting the, the groom. And then Ephesians 5 uh, shows it most clearly. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And don't miss the fact that Paul includes, when he's quoting Genesis 1, he includes not just the marriage, but also the sexual part of the marriage. And then goes and says, this is a picture of Christ's relationship with you. There's something, even in the sexual relationship between a husband and wife, that is imaging God. And we'll get more into that in this class. Um, Scotty Smith, he said, marital intimacy is meant to preach to our own hearts and our community of the wonder of what it means to be in relationship to Jesus. And the book of Revelation kind of takes it to its full end. There's a marriage metaphor uh, in the end of Revelation. A bride adorned for her husband becomes, eventually a couple chapters later, the wife of the Lamb, and they celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb um, that the Lord's Supper points us towards. Um, so uh, Phil Riken, he says, the Bible begins with a blind date and ends with a wedding reception. So marriage is not a superficial metaphor, but it's a sacred mystery that is introduced at the beginning of the world and lies close to the heart of the gospel. Again, Ray, or, uh, I don't have it up there. I'll go back. Um, Ray Orland, he says, marriage from the beginning was meant to be a tiny social platform on which the love of Christ for his church and the church's responsiveness to him could be put on display. Uh, Riken adds to that, the relationship that God wants to have with us is like the mutual affection of a man and woman who are so deeply in love that they promise not to love anyone else but to stay together for the rest of their lives. Whether we are married or single, all of us are invited into this spiritual marriage. And then Ian Duguid adds, Song of Songs, uh, it, it echoes... The songs in this, song, in this book echo the melody of another deeper and richer song, a song about a true and faithful lover who is not like Solomon with his massive harem of disposable women, but rather one who loves and gives himself for his bride. So I took a class in seminary, a weekend class, by a pastor named Scotty Smith. Um, it was very helpful. It was, it was a long time ago, though. I was looking back at my, some, of notes, some of my notes. I did not take very good notes, unfortunately, and I couldn't remember everything from it, but I do remember, and I took good notes, and he on this part, um, the theme that he kept going back to throughout the class. And we talked about a lot of the topics we'll talk about um, the next couple of weeks. But the foundation that he kept coming back to is the, our primary longing and need in life is the espousal affection of Jesus. And to, to grasp that at a deep level will impact the way that we um, engage in our 
physical intimacy in our human relationships, in our marriage relationships, and as we think about sexuality. Um, that, that quote kind of echoes the famous one. It's been said that it was G.K. Chesterton. I've actually found out it was not him. We, we don't know exactly, but every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. You've probably heard that. Um, and that's just a profound statement of some of the deeper desires of our hearts that we we try to fill that God-sized hole with things like sexuality. There's a, a book that um, came out a couple years ago called Surfing for God. It's a, it's a book um, written for people who struggle with pornography. And so that phrase, surfing for God, surfing is like surfing on the web. But what they're really looking for is God. And he tries to really describe the divine desire beneath sexual struggle. And so that's, that's kind of what that, that idea is getting at it. And, and a lot of that, I think, one place you can go in the Bible to talk about that is Psalm 51. That's the psalm that talks of, um, of David's response to his sexual sins with Bathsheba. And one of the, the hearts of Psalm 51 is where David says, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Now, why would he talk about that in Psalm 51? Why would that be an important part of his sort of recovery from the sin that he struggled with? Um, restore to me the joy of, his, of my salvation. David is talking about how when we have joy in our salvation in God, that impacts every other part of our lives. So I hope this class, at the very least, helps us articulate the biblical vision and purpose of sexuality through studying Song of Songs and other passages. I hope it helps us apply the biblical purpose of sexuality to various issues of everyday life. But I also hope we can stress the theme throughout this class that our primary longing and need in life is the spousal, spousal affection of Christ. I hope as we unpack the beauty of God's gift of sexuality that it will also point us to the God in whose image we are made and who loves us and seeks to relate to us with a spousal affection and that we would grow in cultivating that with him as well um, as we think about these things. That that, so that's kind of a, a foundation I want to start with, is sort of the wider context that Song of Songs comes into, is, um, as, is this picture of our relationship with God that we need to be cultivating and experiencing in a spousal-like, affectionate way with Him that I think we all, if we admit, c- can grow in. I want to turn now to um, three lies about sex that are often taught um, and as I will show, not just um, you know, in society, but also in the church, often these lies can be um, moved forward. The first lie, so the, the, I'll just name them now. It's, um, the first is that sex is everything. The second is that sex is nothing. The third is that sex is the way to uh, freedom. So this is kind of commenting on the wider context of our day the context that we are living in. Um, And those three, I'm indebted to a a pastor named Brent Webster for those three sort of headers. So first of all, the first lie is that sex is everything. Um, I think I don't really have to convince any of you that uh, sexuality is often worshipped in our culture, worshipped by humanity. Uh, Ours is a hyper-sexualized age, you know, the Epicurean phrase from centuries ago of eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die is, is very much alive and well in our culture. There's a lot of hedonism. Um, 
I think this one way to capture this is Woody Allen. Um, he says, I don't know what the question is, but sex is definitely the answer. Um, and I think that captures a lot of the, the thought about sexuality um, in our day. All, it's all over TV. The average American views sexual material, material more than 15,000 times a year if they're you know, engaging in media in an average way. Um, by a ratio of 10 to 1, the couplings on TV involve sex outside of marriage. One TV producer said married or celibate characters aren't as fun. Um, and it's cool. I think people like uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines, I think, are changing some of that attitude, uh, which, is, which is really neat to see. Uh, pornography. I could spend a whole class on, on all the uh, ways pornography is, is affecting our culture and our people. Today, pornography sites have more website traffic than Twitter, Instagram, Netflix, Pinterest, and LinkedIn combined. One of the leading pornography sites in the world claimed that just, just in 2019, this is one site, they had 42 billion visitors and 39 billion searches performed. So that's 115 million a day, almost 5 million an hour, and almost 80,000 a minute. And that's just one site. And there's a plethora, you know, tons of sites. All right, so that's, that's kind of a, a brief introduction to this idea of sex. One of the views, one of the lies is that sex is everything. Um, and I need, we need to also admit that this mentality in a different way has been true in the church as well. Um, and, it, and it looks a little bit differently, where in the church, often sex can become the unforgivable sin. Um, we kinda, it kind of rises to the top that if you're struggling with, with something in the you know, realm of sexuality, um, you, your, your reputation can be hurt more than struggles in other areas um, of the Christian life. And, and, and in that way, I think we can often make sex everything, where um, you know, a struggle in that supersedes struggles in other areas. And, and we just have to say that that's a denial of the gospel. Uh, it's saying the gospel is not big enough to cover um, some of those struggles that many of us deal with and that I hope our church can be a safe place to, to talk about them and, and process them with each other. Um, but the culture, it's the opposite. Instead of um, sexuality being the top hierarchy of sin, it's the top hierarchy of what the good life is in our culture. Um, you know, this, this belief that the more sex you're having, even with more people, the better your life is. If you don't have it, you are not a real person. You're not a real adult person. You haven't made it yet. Um, movies like The 40-Year-Old Virgin, that's, that's a comedy uh, because that thought is, is comic in our day. So, you know, just the, how, you, how you finish the sentence, if I'm not having sex, then blank. Um, how, how we finish that sentence, I think there are ways that that sentence is finished in our day that um, kind of makes it an ultimate thing that if you're not engaging in sexuality in some way, um, you're not truly living. That's, we'll get more into that as the class goes on, but that's the first lie. The second is that sex is nothing. Apostle Paul actually interacts with this um, belief in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and in chapter 7. Um, one of the beliefs in the Corinthian culture, and even that the church was, um, some, some people were holding in the church, 
is it's, uh, when it talks about sex in 1 Corinthians 6, there's this phrase, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. And then he goes into a teaching on sexuality. So Paul is showing that there was this belief that just like um, you know, our, when you're hungry, you go and eat, that sex is the same way. When you, when you feel aroused, you just go and indulge on that desire. Um, sex is just an appetite. Uh, the most famous probably um, example of this in our day is the song from a couple decades ago, you know, we ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. That's that, this, is, this is just what we do. Um, it's just an appetite. Uh, Peter Berkowitz, he wrote something in the Atlantic Monthly um, talking about the different way that college students have referred to having sex um, from the 60s till modern day. Um, and he shows just kind of this slow devaluing of what sex means over the decades. In the 60s and 70s, at the dawn of the sexual revolution, uh, kind of college students referred to one of their newfound freedoms of, of being able to you know, go to college and have sex. Um, they, they talked about it in, this, in the term, the phrase, making love. So that was a euphemism that it, it took sex away from marriage, but it preserved its link to romance. There was still meaning in that definition. In the 80s, it was more talked about as just having sex. Um, so it severed the biological drive from the emotional attachment. Today, the most famous phrase, the more popular phrase is hooking up. You've maybe heard that phrase. Um, so it's just like railroad cars or, you know, a computer at, to a docking station. So he's, he's getting at this um, progression um, over the decades. It used to be making love, but now it's this mechanical hooking up. Um, this shows what we now think about it, that it's viewed like plugging your phone into the charger. It's, it's a necessary function, but not that significant. It's, it's taking the significance out of it. So that's that idea that sex is nothing. And again, I've got to talk about the church when I talk about this as well. There are ways that the church can teach this kind of thing in a different way. And Paul actually addresses this in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Uh, I wonder, did I put this on the side? Uh, no, we'll get to that in a second. Um, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, this is uh, verse 1 of chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, so Paul is responding to something they were asking him a question about. Someone in the church was teaching, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations, relations with a woman. So this, it was just kind of this downgrading of sexuality. Um, and so Paul then basically responds and says that's, that's not biblical at all. And uh, we'll talk more about 1 Corinthians 7 in a couple weeks uh, where it talks about kind of marital conflict with sex. Um, but over the years, over the centuries, um, in some parts of the church, um, sex can be just a very uncomfortable topic, a very dirty topic, one that's handled very simply, um, and just all about the do's and don'ts, and um, it, it, we, we lose this sense of its significance. And um, definitely in the, the medieval times, this was at its height. Uh, Peter, Peter Abelard in the 12th century, he said, the Holy Spirit leaves the room when a married couple has sex. Even if they do it without passion to make new virgins for the kingdom. Uh, that was, that's kind of an extreme example, uh, but that's just, you know, 
an example of, of ways that, that that attitude has found its way through the church. Um, the, the hit show Friends from a while back that most of you have probably seen, there is um, sort of this famous dynamic in uh, the earlier parts of Friends where the character Monica um, has this relationship with, um, I forget the guy's name in the show, but it's Tom Selleck's character. And um, they're talking about their relationship and they're talking about whether they should continue being friends with benefits. Um, you know, just basically having sex with each other, but then just not really being too close to each other. And they're on the phone and Monica says, I think it's, it's better this way. And he says, yeah, we're being smart in doing this. Um, but then the conversation continues and Monica is thinking about it more. She says, if we do this, can we be, f- be friends and have sex? And, and Tom Selleck, he says, uh, sure, it'll just be something that we do together, like playing racquetball together or something. It's not a big deal. Um, and so there's just this sense, it's, it's just like playing a sport together or it's a hobby we have. Um, and it's interesting that Monica's response to that, she says, it's, it sounds smart and healthy to me, but just out of curiosity, do you have any other racquetball buddies? And so it's, it's actually a really interesting moment because it shows they're trying to live in this universe they've created, but she can't avoid the impulse, I don't want you doing this with someone else. And there's something in that impulse that is communicated um, that I think is, is moving towards a, a deep biblical truth. Um, and that's sort of the heart of, of hookup culture. Um, this is also the case in pornography. Uh, Russell Brand, uh, who's a popular figure, he had this kind of this teaching on YouTube that went viral where he is someone who had struggled with pornography addiction and he was kind of in recovery and, and starting to realize all the damage it had done to him. Um, he says famously, the problem with pornography is not that it shows us too much, but too little. It reduces sex to a mechanical act. And he says his own relationship for, with pornography is at the hub of his own self-doubt. And I think what he means there is his own self-loathing, his own shame that he deals with in his life. And, and I think when you think about when sex becomes nothing like it does in pornography, um, it's, it, it leaves you feeling empty. You feel nothing in it because the, the, the meaning is taken out of it. It's, it's this thing that has lots of meaning that you're engaging with in different ways without meaning, and it leaves you feeling empty like Russell Brand shows. And uh, 1 Corinthians 6 is a great example um, of the meaning in sex. Or do you not know, Paul says, that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it's, as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. That verse is actually making a profound psychological point. Um, the joined, that word in the Greek, um, is a very rich word. It's to bond together. It's, like, it's um, kind of the sense of being glue. Uh, Plato actually uses that same word in one of his writings to talk about um, gluing a handle to pottery. And the Bible is saying that's what sex does. It doesn't matter what you intend in it. It joins. It's a bonding act. And another interesting quote from a movie called Vanilla Sky. I've never seen the movie, but uh, Tom Cruise is sort of this, this player in the movie. He's sleeping around. And Cameron Diaz, uh, her character, is one of his friends, and, and they had slept with each other, and she's wanting more. She's wanting more of a relationship with, with him, but he's wanting less. He just wants to keep it casual. But there's this one point in the movie, I've been told, where she corners him, 
And she yells at him and says, you can't just go have sex with, with someone. Your body is making a promise when you do, whether you mean it or not. Which is, again, I mean, that's, that's what 1 Corinthians 6 is teaching. Um, your body, which is you, is making a promise when you engage in sex with someone. Um, and we'll talk more about that when I get into the three truths. So um, this is why also partners who aren't um, married start to feel marriage-like towards one another when they start having sex with each other. Um, this is why couples who are um, having sex, it's hard for them to break up. Even though they, they're miserable in the relationship, they actually use sexuality to kind of heal their, their tension. Um, and that's something a lot of um, definitely college pastors are dealing with as well as they talk with some of their students. Um, all right, so the third lie, that's, so sex, is, uh, sex is the way to freedom. There's, um, on Cal Berkeley is a famous college for the, talking about the freedom of speech. There's a big circle in the middle of Cal Berkeley called the free speech circle, and, and there's engraven in that circle, this soil and the airspace above it should not be part of any nation and shall not be subject to any entity's jurisdiction. And so people go there and they kind of express themselves in that circle. And it's, and it's you know, a, a great picture of, of a lot of what is going on in our day where we live in an age of authenticity. Create your own beliefs and morality, the only rule being they must resonate with who we feel we are. Uh, the worst thing we can do is to conform to some moral code that is imposed on us from outside by society, parents, um, and whoever else. Carl Truman um, really unpacks the history of how we got there. Um, so we live in a romanticized age. The modern authentic self is also romantic. There's a focus on feeling, on sensuality, and intuition as the deepest and most important parts of our human identity. And Freud is very influential in that. That's where we experience real meaning. Um, so the only way, it's this mentality, the only way to become authentic is to take my feelings, especially my sexual feelings, and act on them. And that mindset becomes an idol. And that's also in some ways, come into the church in, in this sense where um, we as believers can struggle with, you know, engaging with Christ about different struggles in our life, but then in our sexual struggles, we, we kind of keep those to ourselves and we don't let Christ speak into them. Um, and one example of this mentality more recently is from um, Taylor Swift, um, who... I'm about to give a, a negative example of her. I've, I've listened to her music a lot. I'm, what I'm not saying is you, you can't listen to Taylor Swift because of this, but this is just an example of this mentality. Um, she has a song, You Need to Calm Down, that came out a couple years ago. And really, that song is really a message about sex, sexuality, and gender. Um, it lifts up and celebrates sexual freedom. And it actually, the song ridicules the Christian bigotry towards um, the sexual revolution. It calls those in the song who hold the Christian ethic. She says, you would rather be in the dark ages. You need to calm down. You need to just stop. Um, and it talks about them as spending all night making their picket sign. Um, and so in her music video, there's this little group of Christians with their picket signs, you know, the, the slow, the, you know, cliche slogans against homosexuality or whatnot. And of course, she's making a straw man there. Um, you know, the majority of Christians engage in these spaces in, in much healthier ways than that. Um, she's using an extreme example, but she's also making a point. And, and, and it's not as much the video as, as, as this, 
that shows the significance of that. That video won Video of the Year at the MTV Movie Awards, but it also won the award for the, um, it won the award for the video for good. So that, the, the message, and, and throughout the video, there's kind of this celebration of all these people, um, you know, in, in the LGBTQ community, and they're all having fun and celebrating and partying, and the Christians who are on the side with their pickets, they're all miserable. Um, and so there's just, you know, that one video for good. Um, so that's just an example of, of things, this sort of sex being this way to freedom to express ourselves. Um, and uh, so that's the three lies. I will get into the three truths in a couple weeks um, to respond to that. Well, that's all I have for today. Um, look forward to next week picking up chapter one and, and looking at chapter one and um, really camping on the theme of, of also kind of the application of body image and, and body image issues in our day next week. Let me pray and close us. Father, thank you for uh, this chance to, to reflect. I pray as we've considered these um, different uh, teachings that you would um, give us the ability to um, apply them to our lives, to continue learning uh, your good vision for our sexuality in, in our different spheres of life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.